animation one-to-ones from squiggly.com. I'm Steve Henderson and Disenchantment is back, the fantastic medieval fantasy drama series from the minds of Matt Groening and Josh Weinstein has returned to Netflix for part four which sees Bean, Elfo and Lucy as well as a kingdom full of characters traverse their way through a world of hell, magic, dream and steam. As the show grows we're really getting to know these characters and with each passing series the ante is upped, the jokes get funnier and the storylines get more exciting. Packed with a cast full of US and UK comedians and voiceover artists the show is really showing others how it's done. If you've not already watched this please get stuck in, you won't regret it. In this episode, we catch up with Josh Weinstein, the co-creator of the series, to find out more about the writing process and everything else he's done uh, for Disenchantment. So Disenchantment's back. Uh, thanks for coming yeah. back to Squiggly to give us another look behind the scenes as part four hits Netflix. Uh, questions are answered and then... Obviously, a load more questions are left hanging in the air in the end, because obviously it wouldn't be uh, the fantasy epic uh, if it wasn't, you know, if that wasn't the case. Right, That's yeah. just what Disenchantment does, isn't it? Um, but as the we, show... We answer questions and then new ones pop up. And drive it, it either, it alternately satisfies fans, but also drives them crazy. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't have it any other way. That's the thing. <laughs> Uh, but as the show nears its final season, um, have you found yourself like tied up in knots and, you know, tumbling deeper down rabbit holes? Um, and have you found yourself going, oh, how are we going to put this back together? Uh, it, it, has that been fun? Has that been difficult? Tell me about that process. It's both. You know what? It's been it's been it's very rewarding and it was less difficult than we thought it would be because we have we basically we want to wrap up this story in 10 that the people are seeing right now but the the next to last batch of episodes of at least this story and so we are now wrapping it up and we have 10 episodes to wrap it up which to me feels just about right and like as as i said before like we know we knew the ending of this story from the very beginning and we knew a lot of steps along the way, but not every step. And just as as we had, when I, I was on Gravity Falls the last two seasons, but it's very similar where they knew where it was going to end. But as the show evolves and the stories, things present themselves and you go like, oh, that's a nifty solution. So it's like, it's sort of like, I don't know, 60% planned and then the... Uh, 40% though arises every season and we go like, that's great. And for example, like the, the character of Mora, who we fell in love with along with Bean and the fans did, we didn't, Mora was not, we always knew there would be mermaids in the series, but Mora was not planned in the very beginning. But once we came up with her, then we realized that she is a crucial part of the finale. So like that's something that was like, knew that arose but now like I'm, I just wrote a very important near to final episode and it very much has to do with Moore and Bean's relationship but also all the other canonical things that we've set up so more Mora 
Yes, more and more, because also I think what I realized too is like this, the season that people are just got recently, that has that has some more in it, but not enough to satisfy anyone, mm-hmm. including us. But the the season we're working on now has has more, more, more. Obviously, uh, unlike The Simpsons or, or or other shows that you worked on, uh, with a circular storytelling style, the characters don't reset at the end of every episode, right. ready to to start over. Um, I think King Zog has seen some real development. It's very much, from my point of view, it, it seemed to be his series, this one. Uh, you know, really real development from this kind of scepter-throwing blowhard uh, monster yeah. into a character that's really changed and been through a lot. Um, and obviously, uh, Bean, Elfo, Lucy, and everyone else has been through similar changes. Is this liberating for a writer to be able to take these characters through this journey? Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of thrilling to see them evolve. And for example, King Zog, he really evolved thanks to John DiMaggio, who's the actor who does the voice, because he earlier on when we had emotional scenes for King Zog, and DiMaggio just nailed them so beautifully. We were like, wow, he's got an amazing range. We can write to that. And it's also people really feel, including us, feel for Zog. So that that's another thing that kind of like evolved over time where we felt like we can, because we originally just planned to tell like the real emotional stories of Alpha, Bean, and Lucy, but he presented himself as, as someone with a lot of deep stuff going on. Oh, we, we've we've praised uh, John DiMaggio uh, before uh, in our in our interviews as as part of Disenchantment, but yeah. obviously fans are delighted to see him back for Future Armor and obviously new episodes of of Future Armor. Are you looking forward to seeing that as a fan? Yeah, yeah, I'm jealous that I don't get to work on it because I'm doing Disenchantment, which I love too. But it's like it's it's yeah, as a fan, I'm really excited because I'm just here. I hear tidbits from Matt graining about what's going on. It's really exciting. And also that DiMaggio did come back and so they've got the full staff because you had cast because, you know, Disenchantment is basically the Futurama cast plus half, like half our cast from, or like a third of our cast from England and other and other peop, comedy people. But it has the, co- the core, it was the Futurama cast that we just loved and was like a big family and so we wanted to keep it together until the future hope that Futurama would come back and it did. So is is, uh, is Matt Groening there teasing you about what's going to happen and, uh, and 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 things like that? I hear I hear little snippets he will I he doesn't tell me everything. As much as you I mean I'm trying to get it out of somebody who's trying to get it out of somebody so <laughs> I'm, I've got no yeah. chance here have I? Yeah because like my kids always ask like did you hear anything what's gonna what it's what's gonna happen? <laughs> Um, so uh, obviously uh, for part four, you you speaking of of Matt Groening, the finale was written by yourself, Rich Fulcher, uh, Jamil uh, Salim, and Matt Groening. Uh, can you tell me about that process and who contributes to what? You know, who does the jokes? Who does the cool stuff? Who keeps everyone on track? Uh, who keeps plussing the jokes? Is there a process of like a? I know you've said in the past in The Simpsons there was a writers' room. The pandemic probably didn't allow that type of thing. Yeah, it's it's really it was a combination of the pandemic and also like my thoughts about best using the room, which actually evolved a while ago with my 
on again, off again, writing partner Bill Oakley, we're still doing stuff together. We're not on disenchantment together, but when we were running Mission Hill, we realized that the room, I got. I will condense this because I could go on forever about my theories about the room and stuff, that the room was really great for breaking stories and discussing stories. But as far as doing like a rewrite and going page by page and punching up jokes, a, a room is not the best place, especially on, as we learned on Zoom. There's like, because there's a, there's a, a dynamic of being in the same room with people that is just different than Zoom, where you get a level of separation already. And it's just like, it doesn't have, Zoom doesn't allow for the social back and forth that is actually kind of necessary to get the easy flow of jokes and all that. But it's also the room I found is just not efficient for individual joke punch up. So we we devised a system called called modular writing, where it's like we'll get the writer, the individual writer will write, they'll pitch out the story with our, our group in a room, be it in person pre-COVID or on Zoom these days. Um, then they'll go off and write an outline. I'll give notes on that. Then they'll write a first draft. Then that will come in. Then Matt and I will have a discussion about, okay, these are the big, because Matt and I are the only ones who have the whole story in our heads. And we, it's like, it's such a complex story. That's not, it's not like we're trying to keep it secret from the staff, but we realize like, oh my God, we never told you this or that. So it's like, so, so then Matt and I will discuss the first draft then we'll have a discussion with everybody for it usually takes like a half a day. Um, and then what will happen is then I'll assign either individual scenes to writers or actually just go through the script and I'll be like, this needs a better joke. This line needs to be funnier. Give me three versions of this joke. Give me three versions of this joke write one version of the scene and every writer goes off and does that and then hands them in. And I found you get you get literally like five times more usable jokes. It's it's uh, obviously years of writing experience has, has come down to that. So it's, it's, it's built that. Um, and, and in terms of the the individuals uh, working on on this particular uh, episode where there have been so many of you, uh, are you all trying to outdo one another? No, it's more just like Pat, kind of passing it along. And so it's like like Rich and Jamil did that. And also because we were in a, a real time crunch as oh, as happens often in animation, as you'll know, because we're, we're, we're working on, especially Ben, working on multiple seasons at once and you really run up against deadlines. So we're like, no one person has the time to write this final episode. So we, we split it up hmm. amongst us. And did parts, and then like, and also like Richard Jamil did it. Did like think I? It was so long ago, even though it's just there now. I don't remember exactly, but I think we split it between them. Then Matt and I took it and kind of split it, split it, and did a pass on theirs, and so like that's. But normally Matt and I will not, don't want. We already have too many credits on the show already. <laughs> like at that, like having credit, having writing credit on the episode is purely like a writer's guild thing is because we wrote a certain percentage ourselves. So then we, we have to take credit. You, you, you don't want to fill the credits with your names. You don't want There's, to be It's like... already embarrassing. It's already, I think it's on it like three times 
at least uh, also when I write an episode, I think it's three times. And that's kind of embarrassing. Like I don't like, like on some shows, like the executive producer showrunner takes credit on every script. And, you know, they'll have the writer's name and so-and-so who's the showrunner who rewrote it. But that ends up kind of screwing the writer out of, not just out of a, a credit, but out of residuals as well. It's, it's interesting. I'm sure there's the showrunners that would take the opposite stance and have like catering by because they brought sandwiches in one day or something like that and have their name up every every step of the way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't even, I don't like seeing my name. I don't like my name, so I don't like seeing it. But American animation is in a really interesting place at the moment. There's a lot of, of hashtags going around. There's a lot of unionizing. Uh, there's a lot of power coming back to the animators. I'm wondering your position as a, as a showrunner and writer, uh, how you feel about all that and how it's, uh, how it's all come together? Because obviously writers historically have, have always been uh, covered really well with unions. That's a really interesting thing because it's also like it's it's coming ar around also for like voiceover actors, yeah. And you know, with like that, that John DiMaggio held out, but now he's signed back on Futurama. But there's kind of like a it became kind of a rallying thing for voice actors as well. And I think yeah. it's like the interesting thing about animation, and I'll just say from a writer's point of view, is it was so long neglected. Yeah by the unions and I'm a proud, I'm a proud WGA person, which is different. There's also the animation union 839, which handles places like, like Disney and stuff. And all, all unions are important, but I like, to me, I believe that the writer's guild provides the best protection for animation writers, but it took a long time to, uh, to organize that. Like when I started on the Simpsons, we weren't in any union. And that, besides not getting health insurance, that's also meant like no, like minuscule residuals. But like, for example, we, Bill Oakley and I wrote 12 episodes of The Simpsons. Had it been in the Writers Guild, I would be getting huge residual checks still now. I'd be call, I'd be doing this podcast from a castle or wherever, <laughs> wherever. But instead it's very, it's te really teeny, like literally like, I don't know, maybe hundreds, hundreds of dollars a year, thousand dollars a year, as opposed to both. So it, it, the unions, both unions provide huge protection and also for health insurance. So like in terms of unions, yes, it's also, there is like this, this undercurrent revolution going on where I see like on Twitter, a lot of animation writers and animators talking about, we've got to unionize. And that is really important because it's just, it, even though I think animation is harder and more intensive than live action, both writing and obviously animating it, it it's what was so long treated as sort of a second class citizen in Hollywood. Mm. So, so, so yeah, but there is something going on in, in those terms and that's, it's really important. Well, absolutely. It's great to see things are changing i think it's always nice to see the, the the people behind the scenes being recognized for what it is that they provide and what it is that they create and uh yeah um i, I uh, long may it continue i think yeah i agree it's not it's nice because it is like it's finally like every everyone behind the scenes in animation is is actually getting recognition and i think 
it's because of the internet and fandom that suddenly people know who directed an episode or who wrote it or who the actors are and who or the storyboard artists or the background artists because they're on Twitter and other places. So it's like, that's that's really cool. Which disenchantment character do you align yourself with most when writing? Who's who's easiest to write? Who's most uh, uh, on the on the uh, the Josh wavelength? Really, I think it's Bean. Interestingly, though, I might come across with more of an alpha as more of an alpha. <laughs> like I identify more of Bean, and she was originally based both on a lot of friends I had at that age, female and male as well as a little bit of myself in it. Um, but she, to me, it's like she's the most identifiable as far as like what she's going through, what her situation was like in the beginning. And, but then it's also a case of like all the actors bring so much to it. Like an Abby Jacobson brings so much to it that Beans were really fun to write because we know Abby will do something amazing. And that's another thing I'm jumping all over, but but we also know that a lot of our actors are master ad-libbers. So like, we'll, every time we do a record, we'll, we'll get a scene as written a couple of times, but then we'll let them go. And so especially like, for example, Mora and Bean together, like a huge, like that episode that was so good, um, probably was 30% ad-lib by Abby Jacobson and Meredith Hagner. I, uh, since we had a, 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 our first uh, interview about uh, disenchantment, I like to play a little game with myself when watching and to find out which bits are ad-libbed. Was the roast ad-libbed from, uh, from one of the earlier? It, interestingly, yes, it was. Right. You can tell. And that it was like, what if, especially during pre-COVID, we, we tried to get as many actors together in the studio together because that they're such great ad-libbers. And, and, and that like brings everything up. But when COVID started, first we could only record them individually. And then, but now just starting recently, we are able to actually get them in the same studio together in person. And a, a few weeks ago, they had to be separated by a glass wall. But just this week, we are now legally with SAG, SAG the Screen Actors Guild and all the regulations and the actors of course, wanting to do it, we recorded Meredith Hagner and Abby together in the same room as Mer as Mora and Bean, and it was very magical. So yeah, so yeah, that roast that roast was the rare time that was pre-COVID, but but we had Eric, Eric Andre, Nat Faxon, and Abby Jacobson in the studio together, and they're having a great time. And so we, I can actually, I actually took a photo of it. While we talk, I'll, I'll pull up the photo. But yeah, that was, that was hugely ad-lib, but you can tell. But it, can that seems like that has to be ad-lib, doesn't it? Yeah, it just has stuff. You couldn't, if you wrote it, it might, it might look really boring or not like be funny, but it's just in like their delivery. But it is the spontaneity of it that is also really fun. Like we, it's, it's like them, them playing against each other. Because in the roast, you can, you'll notice, that first it's Lucy is against Elfo, but then when, when Bean comes up, they suddenly team up against her. Yeah. And it's like, well, where are your jokes? And it's like, that's totally just what happened in the studio. Even they're all they're all friendly, but it was like that's what that's what happened. 
so you've written for The Simpsons, Futurama, Mission Hill, Strange Hill High, uh, Gravity Falls, uh, to name a few. But are there any characters from the past that like will surprise you and revisit you in your head and and make you wish that you were back in that writing room or writing for that project again? And uh, who do you revisit more often? Who's the character that you're like, oh, I wish I could just have another script with them in it? That's that's a good question. And it's kind of every every single show because like I'll see Simpsons and really miss writing that show. Like for, I, for, I can't even put my finger on it, but I really, and we were there the, the longest, we were there for like eight years. Um, Cause I was gonna go like the, the shows that were short, I would miss more, but there's, I think there's something about the, the jokes on the Simpsons that we could do. Um, that I really, I really miss. Um, but I also miss, for example, I really miss Mission Hill because it, that was cut so short and we didn't get to tell all the stories we wanted. And Bill and I, we're trying to revive that now um, because that that was cut short. So I miss that for those, those reasons. I miss Gravity Falls and those characters just because it was so fun to write. And that was a short run because like, Alex told the story he wanted to tell and when we got out, which is like, I very admirable, but it was so short for us. We were like, oh, we could have done more seasons if we wanted to. So is, is, is there any particular character that you're like, I, I, because I, there was a, uh, yourself and Bill wanted to set up the, the Simpsons wider universe as a, as a, as a show. Uh, yeah. In fact, we were going to, we were going to do that with Matt, who's uh, very on board too of we were going to do Springfield, the spinoff, because we felt like the other side characters had had enough development that they, you can tell your own story, their stories in a full episode. And so that was kind of the, the genesis of that. It was, it, it evolved from 22 short films about Springfield. Yeah, yeah. Was the genesis. But yeah, we were, we were all set to do that. And then we, we couldn't because not enough people were available. And there's a lot of other extenuating circumstances it kind of folded into the show didn't it you sign you end up having episodes that are like mo centric or episodes yeah. just about nelson or about you know that kind of fill fill the uh you know the simpsons will turn up at the beginning and then at the end and then i'll, yeah. I'll bookmark it it, um, it seems like that could happen that that's a good thing for almost any animated show and certainly once i've been on that as it evolves you get other characters have more life and also what happens to me as a, a writer on the shows is i'll change from character to character of who i like most like on futurama i think i think like a lot of people probably started out really loving to write for like bender and a professor but towards my last season i was like i love amy i like writing amy episodes because there's not enough about her and it's interesting so like that evolves too Fantastic. Uh, well, speaking of Futurama, um, once and for all, is Disenchantment in the same universe as Futurama and is in the past, the present and the future? Because a million YouTube videos want to know this answer. I will, this is, there, I'm going to be coy about a certain aspect of it because I have, this is also a thing, it's because it's like, I think people have a right to their head cannons <laughs> and like, I'm co-developer of the show. So I guess my head cannon is real canon, but I have I have a secret head canon about that. 
that I'm not going to say, but I will say this to clarify because it does, it's not correct. Disenchantment is not in the future. And it's not, it's not the Futurama castle that we see in Fry's in that in that flash back. I guess it's a flashback or flash forward. It's not, it's not that world. But obviously the Futurama characters have appeared in the castle, in the time machine. And so you can, this, and now this is my head canon. It is not, it's not official, but I'm saying what I inferred from that, fans could also infer if they, if they choose to believe. Then it's an annoyingly coy answer. <laughs> because it also like, but it's also like that, the Futurama connection has nothing to do with the actual story we're telling. And so like people should not should not expect like, oh, at the end, our final episode is gonna be like, hey, now it's Futurama time. Here are the Futurama characters, let's go with them. And that's the will be the new Futurama. Like it has nothing, it has nothing to do with that. It's more, it's more like a not even tertiary, it's like a quat quaternary or whatever element of the show and it's really more like it's really more fun easter eggy yeah but i will say i have a very though specific head cannon that you could infer by the appearance of that time machine what we're saying about dreamland and that's all i'm gonna say oh but it doesn't it doesn't I, I, I'll, I'll just say again it doesn't have anything to do with the story we're telling so people shouldn't try to like make connections there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying in terms of whatever, I can't say. Fantastic. I'll say, yeah. I'll say someday. I'll say someday and people will go like, that's crazy. Or they'll go, oh. So we're not going to end, it's not going to end the show and it's, uh, we'll, we'll pan out and it'll be, it'll all have been Lisa Simpson's homework. She'll close <laughs> the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I will also, because I would feel it'd be a big ripoff if, 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 if it was all a dream and obviously dreams are very important in a series and it's dreamland and what's below the castle and the castle does have a special effect on dreams. And so dreams are really important in our universe, but it's not going to end up that bean wakes up and it's, it was all a dream. That's, yeah. that's, there's a lot of dream stuff that's important, but that's not going to be that ripoff ending. And I, I've, I have been scratching my head watching the episodes, looking at, you know, from, from you're still very, very secretive about everything. And so I'm looking at the shape of windows. I'm looking at those little little marks on the wall. And, and, and I think that might have been answered in this season, you know, in terms yeah. of marks on the walls. There has, uh, yeah. And a lot of a, a lot of that stuff has been from the very first episodes. Yes. So and, and other stuff we're laying in clues along the way. And in fact, the script that I just wrote last night, it finally pay answers one image that was, and this is just a side thing, but one image that was there in the show at the beginning. And we're like, that's exactly what, that we planned for the beginning. It's, it's answered. It's like people, people were, Matt and I are being super careful, like to tie up all loose ends in the season we're writing now. So people will be hopefully satisfied. Fantastic. 
Um, well, I, I, I gave it a good go on behalf of YouTube. I suppose people will have to keep making uh, fan videos about whether or not Future Armour is based yeah. on what a background artist put in yeah. or what. But they... I tell you, I gave you two, two, two nuggets. It's not a dream, and it's not, it's not the, it's not in the future. It's not, it's not that castle world that we see in Fry's time travel. So you mentioned the uh, the the series that you co-wrote with and co-created with with Bill Oakley earlier on, uh, Mission Hill. And it's been rebooted, um, focusing on uh, uh, Gus and Wally. Uh, is is there any update on that? Is the we're we're pi we're pitching it now, and we and we haven't we haven't sold it yet, but we're we're hoping to because we. We love it, and the people at, at Warner Brothers, who, who's the original studio, are in love with the series, and so we're just we're hoping it will it will find a home. It it, feel, it feels right for this kind of generation of uh, where yeah, we are now. It was it was weirdly ahead of its time, and it's still like very. It feels more apropos now, even. But also, uh, as as people are kind of as the '90s is becoming retro, and people are going around with flip phones and things like, you, you don't have to change a thing. You could yes, just in say fact, that's part of the thing that we realized is there's a certain because like the 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 series as we're selling it takes place right around like 2000. So it's like so it, but it 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 does like now, yeah, it has a lot of '90s nostalgia appeal. Whereas when we were doing it, it's just like that. This is the present day. Um, Josh, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly sure. today. It's great to find out more about the series, and we're really excited to find out what you wrote last night. <laughs> we'll find out in a year or so. Um, when we're looking forward to, to seeing those, uh, those episodes when they come out. But until then, people have got four parts to catch up with uh, on, uh, on Netflix. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Yeah, thank you. It's always a treat. And I also like, as we found, a lot of fans love to watch our episodes over and over again, and they should, because there is stuff, there is stuff hidden in there. Fantastic. And yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'm one of those. I'm going to go and watch some more now. Thank you very right. much, Josh. All right. I'll see you in 10 hours. <laughs> Thank you very much to Josh Weinstein there. Disenchantment is streaming now on Netflix. You can get all four parts right there. Don't forget you can follow Squiggly on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more animation videos and for the latest news reviews, interviews, podcasts and everything else from the world of animation. Head over to squiggly.com.